just to remind you of the Thessalonians and their story, they were a church that was begun amidst uh, trial, great trial in difficulty. Paul preached in the synagogue three weeks in a row, and after three weeks, he ended up um, having to kind of flee the town, and a mob formed outside the Christian's home, Jason's home, and they drug him out of his house to get rid of him. They wanted to end Christianity in their area, so there was this contention when they got started. And the Thessalonians, as you well know, are not noted for famous speakers or preachers or even talents. They're not noted for uh, anything dramatic or massive miracles happening. They are noted for one simple thing, and that is faithfulness to the Word of God and love for the other saints. That's what they're noted for. And what a great thing to be known for. What a wonderful thing to be known for. That you would be known. I mean, think about it. If people saw you and said, you know, I don't know much about that person, but I know that they love God and they love people. It's all I know about them. Wouldn't that be an incredible thing to delight in? So we read here today, chapter 2, verse 13 through 16. Let's read. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. We are covering a very short passage today. But there's a reason. You see, we, uh, let me just start this way. In 2004, I began in what we would call vocational ministry as a youth pastor in North Carolina. And I, and I walked in to this room and I thought that church had to be this exciting bells and whistles place. I thought you needed a really cool band and you needed lights and you needed, uh, you, know, you needed the big screen and you needed all these things. Now, back, back in 2004, it was even less than it is now, but I thought you needed all of these things and you needed constant programs and activities and games. I thought this and I walked into a room and, and no one would hire me as a pastor or a youth pastor or a college pastor or anything. And we ended up going to a church, a plant church in North Carolina called Pleasant Ridge Christian Fellowship. And I can freely tell you the name because they no longer exist under that name and you can't look them up. So, the, so there's nothing to get me in trouble. So the... But we, we went to this church and we started attending and the pastor was preaching through the book of Philippians and I looked at my wife and I said, well, at least he's going through the Bible. Which should tell you something about how I felt about the preaching in the area. Everywhere else that I went was an entertaining service and a, 
and they were engaging and they were fun, but they were all some pastors sharing their opinions of things. And I said, at least he's going through the Bible. At least he's going through verse by verse through book. And so I said, okay, we can stay here. We can, we can be here. And, and, and we started attending. And after a couple weeks, I went to the pastor and I said, look, I'm a young college graduate who's about to go to seminary. I feel called to ministry. I don't know how to do any of this. I don't know how to do anything. I know one thing, and that's that the Word of God has to be present. It's the one thing I knew. The one thing I got right, the one thing I knew, and I still to this day will hold to the idea. That's the one thing I had right. And so I went to the pastor and said, listen, can you teach me how to do ministry? And everywhere else where I had talked to a pastor about doing ministry, they said things like, well, why don't you go get a seminary degree and then we'll kind of help you find it. Like everybody had that kind of offering. And this pastor said, all right, well, how about you intern under me and do a bunch of stuff that I uh, don't have time to do and um, I'll pay you out of my pocket. They already had a youth pastor. They had, a, they had an elder board. They were already kind of functioning. They said, I'll pay you out of my pocket. So he seen me as a young man who needed help who had no idea what he was doing, said, yeah, I'll, I'll take you on. And I learned a ton about what not to do from that pastor. Like, I learned a lot. And he was honest with me. He was like, you don't, you're not learning from me how to do this. You're learning from me how not to do this. And you will, you'll see me make a lot of mistakes. And he was very gracious. And we did this all the time. Like, we hit heads all the time. But I'm the type of stubborn person that needs to hit heads with people. So, I remember when their youth pastor left and he came to me and said, listen, we're kind of in a bind. We need a youth guy. Can you do the youth ministry? And I said, that's what I came here for. I came here for a job. And he said, great. And so he put me in the room and I remember walking into the room. And again, now bear in mind, I knew that the word of God had to be central, but I also thought you needed everything else. And I walked into the room and I said, all right, what do we have? We have a couch and a room and a couple lamps. My wife was a pianist. I didn't know how to play guitar at the time. I didn't, I didn't learn that till much later. There was no screen. Nothing pretty. It was a literal living room in a small house. Not mine. The church owned a house and it was a small house. And there was a living room and that's where youth group happened. And I walked in and there were seven. Were there seven of them? There were seven students in there who were all, all over the place, had no idea of the gospel, or had some idea, some inclination, but no real depth. Uh, maybe one of them was an actual believer at the time. And we walked in, and we started to talk, and I opened the Bible, and all I had to give them was this. That's it. The only thing I had, and I had a little pocket Bible. Like it, was even, it was even funnier than that. It was a little bitty pocket-sized Bible. It was like taking out a pocket knife to cut down a tree. Like it was a, and I opened this Bible, and we began to study through the book of James. And then we did Matthew, and we trudged. And for about, for about two years, I worked with that youth group with nothing but the Bible. And it worked. It worked. People got saved in the... And people from the, from the school started coming and just random people would show up and they'd, they'd walk in and they'd be like, oh, we don't know what we're doing here. And they'd walk in and they would get saved and it would work. The Bible worked and it had to because it's all I had. 
for two years we labored there. And then we came down here to Brazoria and I started working as a youth pastor at another church in town. And I had every tool at my disposal at that church. Every single thing. Screens. I could hire musicians. I had two budgets that were massive that I could do whatever I wanted with. And I gave students the Bible. Which, by the way, is free. I gave people the Bible and it worked. It worked to give them the Bible. We didn't have to play a bunch of games. We didn't have to, we didn't have to buy a bunch of bouncy houses and and sell pizza. We didn't have to have parties. It worked. And then came a time when we started here. And the Bible works. Giving people the scripture only works. And living in community together works. We don't have... I mean, look around. Like This is not... <laughs> nobody's trying to impress you. Like... <laughs> Everything in here is an act of worship. There's a few things of convenience, like air conditioning and curtains behind you, behind me, so they're not so distracting. There's a few things of convenience, but everything in here is about worship and to lead you to the Scripture and the Word of God. The Scripture works, and it has to work. And I want you to understand why this particular message is going to make me cry a couple times because if it doesn't work that means God has forsaken our people if the scripture alone will not work in an area in a place that means the spirit of God is not present praise the Lord for Isaiah the Lord's ears are not too dim that he can hear that he can't hear you his eyes not too dim his his hands are not too short that he can't reach you seek the lord now while he may be found we have that here the scripture works we don't need games gimmicks and programs indeed it is much more powerful in your personal life if you don't have those things in the way and i get it I understand why people do those things. I know that we, we naturally want to gather and garner people. And if you do those things, you'll get them. You'll get crowds. You know what else you'll get? You'll get unsaved goats. You'll get deceivers. You'll get wolves. You'll get those things. And that's... If you want to go the utilitarian route, greatest good for the greatest number... Okay, that's just not in the Bible. So what we have here in Thessalonians is a church that only had the Word of God. That was it. They had what they had been given by Paul. The Word of God. And it changed everything for them. And not in some massive way. Like, they're not a big church. They're a small group of believers in a place where they just want to be left alone sounds an awful lot like brazoria just want to be left alone just government leave me alone just let me worship i want to live a peaceful and quiet life that's that's what the thessalonians are they weren't causing waves they just changed everything they went from worshiping idols to worshiping jesus and everything changed and their entire lives changed and quietly, 
They changed Asia Minor, an entire area of the world that is that is still has an active presence of Christianity to this day. 2,000 years later, has an active presence for Christianity even now. And it's not new. It's been there for a long time. So, let's... I wanted you to understand that as we dive in. And we also thank God constantly for this. So remember last week he talked about how he's got this motherly instinct towards them. He's got this fatherly instinct towards them. He wants to exhort them and he wants to nourish them and take care of them. And he's got these what, what amounts to a victorious life or what amounts to a life that matters is a life that is boldly lived out for the gospel and is a life that seeks the glory of God alone and a life that is intimately and affectionately intertwined with the community of faith. So those are the three things that we see that give a life meaning and they have nothing to do with other people. That's what we noticed last week. There's that a life that matters has nothing to do with the reactions of other people, but all with who you are and the reaction of your soul to God. So we see here in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 that he's also thanking God constantly for this one thing in the Thessalonians. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is. The word of God, which is at work in you believers. So first, when you received the word of God, let's, let's just understand what the word of God is by what Paul is talking about here. First, uh, the first verse that should come to mind for everyone who is familiar with the New Testament is Second uh, Timothy 3.16, right? Uh, that should jump to your mind first. That, and let's just go over there and read it to make sure I don't mess it up when I quote it. First, or Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 or 16 says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and the training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. And we remember that Paul is tying scripture to the very breath of life. It's breathed out by God. That's a clear reference to creation and Adam being breathed into. And that's where life comes from. Paul is saying that the very animating force of life is the scripture, the word of God, which is consistent with the other gospels, or the gospels, the first four gospels in, the, in your New Testament, that, that the word of God is what brings us life. We find life in the very words that God speaks. So first scripture is the word of God that is breathed out. That should be the first one that jumps into your head. Um, another one might be 2 Corinthians 2.13, that it is spiritual wisdom. That it is spiritual wisdom. That's 1 Corinthians 2.13, spiritual wisdom. That the word of God is spiritual wisdom. It's not naturally discerned. It's discerned through the spirit of God, which searches all things. And get this, the spirit of God, no one can know the, the, the mind or the spirit of someone else except the spirit that is within him, Right? No one can know the mind of someone except the spirit that is within him. And the spirit of God searches all things. And then Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 2 to say, you have the spirit of God in you. So 
get the magnitude of the word of God being spiritual wisdom and the spirit of God's moving in you through the word of God. Get the magnitude of that, that you can know the mind of God. That's amazing. Scripture gives you the mind of God through the working of the spirit through the word. So you can have the mind of God. Another thought is when 2 Peter 3, verse 15 and 16, this is one of my favorite passages because it's Peter commenting on Paul's writings. And he says, basically he says, I understand you've been reading the works of Paul. Those things are hard to understand. That gives me a great deal of confidence because I frequently read the works of Paul and go, whew, and I have a master's degree in the, th- in the stuff. And it's hard for me to understand. So for Peter, an apostle who walked with Jesus Christ personally and lived a radically changed life, for him to go, I understand you're reading Paul. Yeah, that dude's hard to understand. For him to say that brings me a great deal of confidence and comfort. Because that means that when I read the scripture, it's okay that I don't get everything. It's okay that I'm not where someone else is. It's not a race. The race is a marathon, and it's with myself. So we've got Scripture here. Peter calls Paul's letters Scripture. Peter refers to them directly as Scripture in, in 2 Peter three fifteen through 16. He calls them Scripture, saying, you've been reading Paul's letters and other Scriptures, and that grammatically points to both of them being Scripture. He's, he's referring to Paul's letter as scripture. And then in Acts chapter 13, verse 44, when Paul gets up to speak, they, it says, everyone gathered to hear the word of God. So first, when Paul is talking about the word of God, he's talking about the message that was given through the New Testament. When he talks about scripture, he's not just talking about the Old Testament as some would like to argue. He's not just talking about the first five books, as even the more rabbinically minded would like to argue. He's talking about the whole counsel of the Word of God, including the New Testament and the letters. So Paul is talking about all of these things, and he says here, when you received, that when you received the Word of God, when He spoke, they received it. This is a passive action. Receipt is a passive action. So when somebody gives you something and you take it, it's a passive action. You're not actually doing anything to receive it. You're just kind of, like that's when they received the word of God. When they received the word of God. In this sense, it's used in this sense that you are catching something that is thrown to you or you're taking from some, someone to yourself, you're, you're just receiving it. This is a passive action. And so he says, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Now, the second word that's used there, accept, is a different word. And it is active. So, I've been in places where I have stood in front of people and have delivered the word of God. And it has not been received. They've walked out of the room or they have rejected all of it. 
I've been in places where I have delivered the word of God and they have received it, but not accepted it. And afterwards is a fight. Those are, those are great, by the way, for me. I'm a very contentious person by nature and it doesn't bother me. In fact, I get excited. That might not be a good thing, but I've been in places where the Lord has used me, where I've spoken the word of God and it has not been received and there's been contention. Paul, when he preached in Thessalonica in the synagogue, met that kind of receipt. He preached and the people did not receive it and they hated him for it. And they drove him out. In Corinth, the same thing happened. He preached and they drove him out. There's only really one or two churches where he went to the synagogue and preached and it went well. Only one or two. One of them was in the Bereans who heard the word of God, tested it, and kept having him come back. They received it and they accepted it. But most often he would preach in a place where there was already an entrenched religious affection for something uh, that was legalistic or that was law-based and he would preach the grace of Jesus Christ and they would turn and they would reject it. They would receive the word, but with contention. Here, he looks at the Thessalonians and he says, I thank God constantly that when we preach the word of God to you, you received it and accepted it. It made a difference. It changed who you were. It was an accepted reality for you. It was something that moved and, and you accepted the word of God. And how beautiful this was that, that they accepted it deliberately and personally. They accepted it. The same concept is here in 1 verse 6. It says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. These people received it, and then they accepted it. And when they accepted it, when they received and accepted it, it became something life-changing for them. And amidst persecution and struggle and difficulty and doubts and depression, they accepted it deliberately moving. Deliberately moving. So the word works. The word works here. It, it changes souls. They deliberately accept it. They believe and they cast off their idols that we know from uh, chapter 1 verse 9 and 10 that they cast off their idols and they worship Jesus. They, in, in a deliberate immediate shift in personhood, a deliberate and immediate shift and that is beautiful. That's the word of God working. It has to work. And then it says this, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And this word of God is at work in you believers or those who believe. This is the word of God works in those who believe. So there's two things to wrestle with here. It does not work in those who do not believe. That's one. But Paul emphasizes that it works in those who believe. Those who believe the word of God changes. It alters who you are. You read it and it changes your very being. It changes your very 
your very essence. The word of God works in those who believe. Just a side note here. When you're formulating doctrinal statements for yourself or for the church or for friends or for whatever you're trying to kind of formulate what you believe. This is a good practice to do if you don't ever do this, but things like the Nicene Creed are helpful for things like this. I believe in God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Father, Son, and, and Father, Son, and Spirit who are one. Um, so the rain is always good. So we see these doctrinal formulations that we make, things like God is sovereign in salvation, uh, oh, another one that you might have is uh, uh, the atonement of Jesus Christ is universal in proclamation, limited in its application. That's another one. That's a doctrinal statement. Everybody can hear the atonement of Christ, but only those who believe is it applied to, right? So only those who trust in Jesus Christ get saved. There's one way, right? That's what you're saying. So you can have these doctrinal formulations. It is best when you're forming those doctrinal formulations to state them by the word of God. So here we have a doctrinal statement. The word of God works in those who believe. The word of God works in those who believe. That's a great doctrinal statement to hold on to and hold fast to. And in those dark moments of the soul, when everything seems wrong and you're depressed and broken and you need something to grab a hold of, you can grab a hold of this. The word of God works in those who believe, and I believe. Even in my difficulty and my struggle, I believe, so I know where to turn. Where do I turn when I'm broken, depressed, struggling, having a difficult time, having difficulties? Remember, people aren't being difficult, they're having difficulties. So we always remember that we can grab hold of the word of God. And, and when our brothers and sisters in Christ are struggling, when our brothers and sisters in Christ are struggling, what do we need to give them? The Word of God. The Word of the Lord. I can remember times when somebody was broken and struggling. And I learned this lesson real young. That you quote Scripture to people who are broken. And you give them the Word of God. And it's awkward. It's really awkward when somebody comes to your room and goes, I'm just having a hard time. And they want to vent and you open to Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, oh my soul? Why are you downcast within me? Have hope in God. And you read the scripture to them and they're going, this is weird. You're reading the Bible out loud and I just came to have coffee. But in those moments of darkness, that's what we need from each other. When I'm broken and old and my mind starts to fade and I'm, and I'm downcast and I'm, and I'm on my deathbed or I'm struggling, don't give me platitudes. Give me the word. Read it out loud. I may be grumpy when I'm older. I'm grumpy now. Just imagine. I may be grumpy when I'm older, but I'm... I need the Word. I need the Word of God. I don't need platitudes. I don't need stories about how great things are for you. I need the Word. I need somebody to open it for me and talk to me about it and, and give me the Word. Tell me what you're learning in Scripture. You want to encourage the heart of any leader in any church. 
when they ask you how things are going, have in your back pocket something you read from the scripture that week that you can share with them and go, isn't that cool? It will sound incredibly awkward to you, but to us, it will be as though we are on cloud nine flying in heaven. It doesn't matter how deep it is either. It can be, you know, I read Psalm such and such and talked about the birds of the air and I just, it just really lit me up. And I had a great day because I thought about the birds of the air. You know how simple that is? You know how much that will make some leader in a church fly? Because the word of God works. And it works in believers. And when we see it, that's what we need. That's what we need to give to each other. That's what we need to hand to each other. The word of God is at work in you who believe. This word for work is present tense and active. So let me just rattle off a bunch of encouragement for you about the word of God working. 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 3, 16, we already talked about that. It's God's breath, the very animating source of life. The breath of God is in the word of God. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, it is food to the soul. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it reveals the intent of the heart, cutting to the very marrow of people. You've heard this one. Double-edged sword cuts to the very marrow of the bone and brings the intent of the heart. In Romans 15, 14, In Romans 15, verse 4, it brings hope. In Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you want people to believe, you better have the word of God in front of them. That's how you get them to believe. That's how faith comes about. It comes about by the word of God. Psalm 119, verse 105, it is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We read that this morning. Beautiful passage in the middle of Psalm 119 about the word of God being the light of life and the way that you walk. In Jeremiah 23 verse 29, it motivates evangelism. That's a polite way of saying it when Jeremiah says, anytime I try not to share your word, it burns within me and it has to come out or I will die. So it motivates evangelism. The word of God motivates you to talk. In John 17, 17, it sanctifies the soul. In Jeremiah 15, 16, the word becomes our joy. The word becomes our joy. And when we think about the Thessalonians and how they received the word and accepted it, and then how they faced struggle and difficulty and persecution with exceeding joy, Incredible joy to the point where when other churches were in need, this church was the one that scraped together out of their poverty to give to that need. Why? Because they feel like this is valuable. This is something incredibly valuable. It is life itself. It is life changing and altering. So take everything I have for the sake of it. Take all that I have for the sake of it that you would be, you would be, filled with the same joy that the Thessalonians are in verse 6 of chapter 1. Verse 14, Paul continues and says, for you brothers, so here's the proof, right? We've got the word is at work in the believers, and then here's the proof for that. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So the churches that are in Judea, that's Israel, right? That area. The churches that are there suffered a great deal of persecution from the Jews. If you want to read more about that, just look at the book of Acts. You can read through the book of Acts. As you read through the book of Acts, remember that those stories are separated by months and sometimes even years. 
We tend to read Acts and we go, look at how explosive and miraculous everything was. A lot of the time, Christianity is a slow walk up a hill. And it's a delightful walk up a hill, but it is often a quiet one with occasional sprinklings of these massively miraculous things that happen. If you read the book of Acts, I just want to encourage you. You need to recognize the timeline as you read. It's not as though every moment was packed with another miracle. I like to point out that between John 7, at the end of John 7, or at the end of John 6 and John 7, and the beginning of John 7, there's about seven months that's not accounted for. Jesus walked with his disciples quietly for seven months that we don't have recorded. They just ate at each other's houses and Jesus talked to them and went fishing. Why do you think Peter wants to go fishing at the end of John? Because that's what I did most often with Jesus. We see that this comes here in slow, steady faithfulness. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God, of the churches of God, I'm sorry, of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So Judah, these churches in Judea suffered great persecution from the Jews. And in Thessalonica, they suffered great persecution from the people that were around them, from their own countrymen. Just for a moment, think about the ramifications of that. The guy you grew up next door to you suddenly won't talk to you. Suddenly won't talk to you. He avoids you. He won't, he, you know, you come out of your house and he runs into his. All because you became a Christian. Guy next door to you. Then when the city begins to put some restrictions on you saying you have to pay an extra tax in order to meet for church service, he's the first one in city council saying, yeah, they should pay a tax. And you don't get to invite it to the city council. You just read about it. That's what's going on. That's what's happening to the Thessalonians. Just this kind of oppressive, ridiculous persecution that started minor and grows to the point where they're having to pay a tax in order to be a Christian. And they're having to give up space in order to be Christian. So these, that's what's going on. These are neighbors and people. He said, you became imitators of Christ. Genuine imitators. People who are genuinely Christian. And we knew you were genuinely Christian because when you face difficulty, you didn't run away. When you face difficulty like everybody else, you didn't run away. You stood up and you were like, no, Christianity is true. Jesus is right. There's a right way to live. And we live that way. We became imitators of, of God and Christ Jesus. They suffered from their countrymen. And then verse 15, and these country, he talks about the Jews here who killed both our, the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind. Remember what we talked about a meaningful life is? That you please God. That's your target audience. So Paul says these people, these Jews who drove them out, 
who killed Jesus, who killed the prophets before them. He's got Old Testament, New Testament, and Jesus right there in this line, in this sentence. And he says, the people who reject Christ and then reject his messengers, they have a meaningless life because they don't please God. And part of a meaningful life is that you please God. They don't please God. And the only way to please God, the only way to please God is by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The only way to please God is by faith. And then we find our exceedingly great joy in His Word as we delight ourselves in Him. So He says, they displease God and they oppose all mankind. There's two things going on. When, you reject, when someone rejects the gospel, they are displeasing to God and they are in opposition to all mankind. And he, he explains that the Jews specifically were in opposition to all mankind by preventing the gospel from going to the Gentiles. By saying that this is a Jewish religion and it cannot possibly incorporate people like me. People like you. I don't know if you grew up Jewish. If you did, then there's another passage for you. This passage, the Jews opposed mankind by opposing my salvation. By opposing the idea that God could work to offer grace to anyone who is not Jewish. The Bible talks about racism. Here it is. When we say that somebody is outside the bounds of God's love and grace because of their race or their background or they're too far gone because of their, their cultural affinities, we are saying this. We are opposing mankind. No, the gospel is open. And even in the Old Testament, like we talked about earlier, he makes provision for the broken leper. For the one who brings nothing to the table. God has always been about salvation for his people. And his people have always been those who will trust in the Messiah. Even at the beginning, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman crushed out of the snake. That, that message right there is given before the law. It's given before Abraham. It's given before any of that. That Jesus Christ would come and crush sin and give us salvation. Indeed, even before that, you can see it in the creation narrative. I mean, even in the picture of the lights, like he gave the lesser lights to rule the night, the greater light to rule the day. The lesser lights just reflect the sun. They're just reflections of the sun. What do you think Christians are? Indeed, when he talks to Abraham, I will make your seed as the, your descendants, as the stars in the sky. They will be reflections of Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman who crested a snake and bring life to all people and light to all man. That sin would be defeated. It's, it's written in every single page. The gospel story that Jesus Christ came to rescue and redeem. And that is where joy is found. So Paul says that these others have done that. People who were supposed to be like you rejected you. They killed Jesus. They, dis, they displease God and oppose all mankind. And they fill up their sins. We see this all over our world today. That people are filling up their sins but God's wrath has come upon them 
at last, or the at last there can be translated completely or in full. And that's what we see in Jesus Christ. When Jesus is presented and the gospel, the word of God is given out to people and they reject it. They fill up their sins. And now judgment has come. Judgment has come. And the beautiful thing about our God is he is patient and merciful, not wishing that any should perish. This is beautiful phrase. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, theologically, we can go to First Peter and talk about that passage in more detail. But I want you to hear the heart behind it. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He never has. He says it multiple times in the Old Testament and in the New. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. But the wicked will be punished. And judgment will come rightly because he is a holy and perfect God. And judgment lands on this earth. So we see judgment has landed. In Jesus Christ, judgment has landed. And it's like you're driving a car. And given this illustration before, I'm going to do it again. It's a good one. So you're driving your car. And you sit. You drive your car and see the lights. You see the lights. And you pull over to the side of the road, which I always thought was funny because it's illegal to pull onto a shoulder anyway, so they've got you right away for doing what they want you to do. So you pull over to the side of the road. Uh, it's illegal to drive on an improved shoulder, and so you're already in trouble. And you pull over and you, you put the seatbelt on that wasn't there, and you fumble through your 12 different things of insurance, you know, the 12 different cards that you have all printed in your wallet that are all out of date except for the one that's buried, like, underneath 17 of them. And then you pull them out, and you pull out your license, and you put your hands on the wheel. And I was raised in a city, so you adjust the light and you adjust the thing so that it's not blinding you because cops are cops and they blind you in the, in the mirror. So you adjust the thing so it's not blinding you. Put both hands on the wheel and you wait for three days. <laughs> After three days of sitting there, you have a knock on the window, right? You roll down the window, and you have your stuff. Good evening, officer. Is there a problem? Now, here's the thing. That officer has already made the decision before he gets out of his car as to whether or not he is going to grant mercy or he is going to give you a ticket. Often, no matter what you say, there's no shifting. There's no change. Judgment landed. But the execution of that judgment was delayed for three days while you waited for the officer to come, while you quickly buckled up and looked for your things as if he was going to give you an additional ticket for not being buckled. And you have your hands on the wheel and you're waiting. And all of your waiting amounts to dependency on the mercy of that cop that got out of his car. You see, that's where we are. Judgment has landed. Jesus Christ came. Gospel is proclaimed. Those who believe will be saved. Those who do not believe will not be saved. It's very simple. Judgment has landed, but the execution of judgment is delayed. So what is it Isaiah says? Seek the Lord now while he may be found. 
The time for second chances will be over. The wrath of God has come. And it will land. The execution of that for us is delayed for a time. So reach out to those who are around you. The word of God has to work. It has to work. Faith alone, scripture alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It must work. It must work. Because it's the only thing that can save the soul. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's the only thing that can save the soul. So you ever wonder why we're obsessed with doing things in Scripture here and doing things. Our worship nights are loaded with Scripture readings and with poetic readings of Scriptural content and songs. We sing songs that you've never heard before because they're just straight Bible. This is why. Because the Word has to work. Must work. 